It's time to be equipped with spiritual battle. Defending the Faith is a show to train Christians worldwide to be effective teachers and speakers on the subject of biblical creation so that the next generation can stand firm on the biblical truth and defend their faith. Now here is your host of Defending the Faith, Mike Riddle. Welcome to Defending the Faith. I'm your host, Mike Riddle, and we're coming to you from KBXL 94.1 FM, The Voice, and we are located in Boise, Idaho. Now, we have a ministry called Creation Training Initiative, or CTI, and we train Christians, uh, students to adults, how to defend your faith, how to know the Bible is really true. We also have training courses that prepare you to speak and teach about biblical creation and apologetics. These courses are great for Sunday school teachers and Christian school teachers who want to learn how to teach this information about creation and how to refute evolutionism. To find out about our courses, you can go to our website, creationtraining.org. That's all one word, creationtraining.org. Also on our website, you'll find out many of my PowerPoint slides I use in my talks. You can download for free. We also have over 80 30-minute videos where I interviewed scientists and theologians and sometimes just do teaching for 30 minutes. All those are for free. Also, again, information about our one-day training courses, even a five-day training course we have there, or how to have us come to your school or your church and do one of our training courses, or just do an hour's teaching. So to contact us, you can do that via email. That's info, I-N-F-O, info at creationtraining.org. So that's how to get a hold of us and what we're doing here. Again, this is Mike Riddle, Defending the Faith. Well, last week, we started with part one on 20 mistakes the evolutionists have made. And we went through the first 10, which were Piltdown Man, Nebraska Man, the Coelacanth Fish, Junk DNA, Vestigial Organs, the Archaeoraptor, the uh, transition between dinosaur and bird, the famous Miller experiment, the origin of stars. And we talked about how they do not form by natural processes, that between humans and apes, we're only 2% difference in our DNA and the rejection of the truth of God's word. Ten mistakes there. And this week, we're going through ten more mistakes the evolutionists have made. Well, let's start with number one here. Dinosaurs died out 65 million years ago. How did that happen, according to the evolutionists? Well, about 65 million years ago, there was this tremendous meteor impact in the Gulf of Mexico, and it caused the dinosaurs to go extinct along with many other creatures. So for 65 million years, there's been no dinosaurs on this planet living. Do you know this does not agree with the observable science? Not at all. You see, we find what we call petroglyphs. Those are canyon wall carvings and paintings of dinosaur-like creatures. Now, something to understand here. It wasn't until the 1800s that we understood these creatures, dinosaurs. We had found some bones, but we really didn't know what they were. So it wasn't until the 1800s we knew what dinosaurs were. The word dinosaur was not even coined until the 1840s by Sir Richard Owen. How would these people know to draw these pictures of dinosaurs if they never saw them alive? Also, we're finding soft Dinosaur tissue still in the bones. We're finding DNA still in the bones. Now, DNA has a half-life of about 521 years. So after a creature dies, 
that DNA is all gone after several thousand years. We're also finding proteins in these dinosaur bones. We're finding unfossilized bones. We're even finding carbon-14 in these bones. After about 100,000 years, all the carbon-14 should have decayed out of these creatures. But yet, we're finding it not in just one bone. We're finding soft tissue in many bones, DNA in many dinosaur bones, proteins, carbon-14 in all these bones, folks. That means, based on observable science, not evolution, but observable science, these creatures could not have been dead very long. Thousands of years, maybe only hundreds of years. See, this is what we need to be teaching our students. It is called science, not evolutionism. And we need to be teaching about dinosaurs to our young children because dinosaurs are one of the main issues evolutionists use to take our children away from a belief in God's Word. So we need good trained teachers in our churches and Christian schools who can teach the truth about dinosaurs. Also in the Bible, we have mentioned about what could have been a dinosaur. In Job chapter 40, verses 15 through 18, it talks about a creature called behemoth. It describes this creature as having large bones. It's a plant eater, and it's got a tail like a cedar, a large tail. That's the description in the book of Job. God is giving this description to Job. This sounds like a dinosaur. It is not an alligator because alligators eat meat, us. It is not an elephant. It is not a hippopotamus, folks. This creature has a large tail. And this helps confirm what we read in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 3 and 4, when they continue to teach dinosaurs died out 65 million years ago. Here's a quote right from the Bible, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 3 and 4. We see this happening today, and it states, For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears. They will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. That's what they're doing when they teach dinosaurs died out 65 million years ago, long before man was here. So mistake number one, dinosaurs. Mistake number two, canyons, large canyons take long ages to produce. Well, that is simply not true. I don't know how many of you have been to Mount St. Helens, in 1980, that, that is a volcano. 1980, that volcano erupted. And from that eruption in 1982 and 1980 and a subsequent eruption in 1982, a large canyon was formed, about one-fortieth the scale model of the Grand Canyon, as some of the same formations we find in the Grand Canyon. How long did it take to make that canyon? About one day. We have examples, many examples of large canyons forming rapidly. There was long ages are not necessarily. In eastern Washington, we have a, called the Scablands, we have a large canyon there carved out through solid rock. That canyon was formed in a matter of days or just a week. So mistake number two, canyons require long ages. Well, let's go to mistake number three called antibiotic resistance. They're talking about these things called superbugs. They become resistant to our antibiotics, and that is evolution happening right in front of our eyes. Well, that's not true, folks. That is another great mistake. You see, three things that are happening here. Number one, some of these bacteria already have the resistance. 
The question is, where did that original resistance or where did that original gene come from? See, they don't talk about that. A second problem here they don't talk about is called horizontal gene, gene transfer. In other words, bacteria, certain bacteria can share their genes. In some cases, it can be a gene that can cause a resistance. But that never answers the question, where did the original gene come from? And third, what happens sometimes is the antibiotic that's being put into the system binds to a protein in the bacteria so that the protein cannot function properly. In other words, the protein that carries this antibiotic into the system gets a mutation. Notice the protein has a mutation. And because of that mutation, the antibiotic cannot bind to the protein, and the antibiotic is not carried into the system, giving the appearance that has developed this resistance when, in fact, it has no resistance at all. The protein that carries the antibiotic in does not function, and therefore the antibiotic does not get into the system. Why can't we teach this to our school students? Well, number one, it's real science. Number two, it shows evolution is not correct, and that's not allowed in our public systems. Notice I use the word public system versus public education system. When they start teaching the real science, then maybe we can call them public education, but right now they're not allowed to. Now, I'm not criticizing teachers here. I'm criticizing the system. The teacher's hands are bound by, a lot of times, the law, they're not allowed to teach real science. <laughs> so mutations are very real, but it is not really an antibiotic resistance due to, they become resistant to the antibiotic. So let's go to number four, life in outer space. Sometimes we are called arrogant because we might believe this planet here, Earth, contains the only life in the universe. People say, that's arrogant. Look at the size of the universe. There must be millions of planets out there that harbor life. Well, let's take a look at the science. Number one, as we talked about last week in the Miller experiment, life cannot start in the presence of oxygen because oxygen destroys the chemical bonds. Life could not start if there was no oxygen because that means we have no ozone, no protection from the sun. And life can't start in water, because water destroys chemical bonds. Also, last week we talked about in the experiment that proteins, which are made up of amino acids, are made up of all amino acids that are left-handed. Now, they come in two shapes, left and right-handed ones. But right-handed ones are not used in biological proteins. All proteins contain 100% left-handed amino acids. And you have trillions of these in your body, and they're all left-handed. But the natural tendency is always to bond about 50% left-handed, 50% right-handed. That's the natural tendency. And our scientists can't figure this thing out. In other words, our best scientists in the world cannot even generate one single small biological protein, let alone the rest of the cell. But they don't talk about all the other science when it comes to talking about life in outer space, UFOs and space aliens. <clears throat> Now, I like a good science fiction movie, but you have to understand it's just science fiction. And unfortunately, we're bringing a lot of science fiction into our science classrooms. See, 
There's zero evidence. Let me emphasize that. There's zero evidence for life, life anywhere else in this universe. Let me give you just six problems here. Number one, this is the origin of life. We can't even get a single biological protein, let alone a cell or anything else. So there's a major problem, the origin of life. If life can't start here on this planet, why would you think it can start anywhere else in this universe? That's science problem one. Science problem two, distances and the speed of light. See, light travels, you want to round it off, about 6 trillion miles in one year. About 6 trillion miles in one year. Distances. The nearest star to our planet, not counting our sun, the nearest star is about 4.2 light years away. That's about 26 trillion miles. Now, let's combine that with communications here. Distances and radio waves. Distances and radio waves. So this will be number two and number three. If there was life out there on, the, on a planet by that nearest star, and there's no planets at that nearest star, but if there was a planet there and there was life there, and they came to our planet Earth and they wanted to phone home and get a response back, that would take eight years. See, they don't talk about that, these distances. We're not going faster than the speed of light. It would take your radio message, and these radio waves don't go any faster than the speed of light, four years to get your message to your home planet, and four years to get a response back. Now, I know when you watch Star Trek, Captain Kirk can do that in just an hour or less, communicate halfway across the universe. But see, that's science fiction. We've got to get down to real science. The nearest galaxy to us is 2 million light years away. If there was any planets out there, were any planets out there with life on them, and by the time you got your radio message to that planet, that would take 2 million years. By that time, everybody on planet Earth is dead. To get the response back would take another 2 million years. See, those are things we don't talk about in science fiction. But in science fiction, we can have some fun. We can get around science. So number one, the origin of life. Number two, the distances and the speed light. Number three, the distance and radio waves are prohibitive. And then we have space travel and energy. In order to propel something, just half the speed of light would take an enormous amount of energy. But we also have to have the energy to slow ourselves down or we're going to crash land. We're talking the energy of many atomic bombs, that much energy, just to propel ourselves just near half the speed of life, speed of light there. So you don't talk about that. It's just automatic. Number five, space stuff. There's a lot of dust out there, folks, a lot of dust. If you're going near the speed of light and you are crashing into something about the speed, about the size of a pea, you just had the equivalent of multiple atomic bombs bursting into you. See, they don't talk about things like that. You see, we've been indoctrinated. Hollywood has featured over 500 programs and movies about UFOs and aliens. And it was, we've been kind of indoctrinated through science fiction, and we brought that science fiction into our public education system. Here's a question I'd like to ask anybody that's believing in UFOs. Can you show me any observational evidence for life anywhere else in this universe that does not require me to use faith. I'm requiring observational evidence, or it's nothing more than a faith issue. No one has done that yet. So number four was life in outer space. As far as we know, it is non-existent. 
Let's go to number five, the peppered moth, taught as evolution. Well, these peppered moths, they come in light shades and dark shades. And they supposedly landed on these trees, on the bark on the trees. And the birds had a tendency to like to eat these moths. Well, the light-colored pepper moths and the dark-colored ones both landed there. Now, notice, one's light, one's dark. But they're both peppered moths. That's the first thing we need to understand. Well, the light ones kind of uh, blended in with the bark. So the birds would see the dark ones easier. So they eat up the dark ones. The light ones, kind of being camouflaged by the light-colored bark, survive. And we have a larger population of light-colored moths than dark-colored ones. Then we have the Industrial Revolution and all these soots and everything gets out there, and some of the trees have a little darker shade. Now the dark moths are blending in better on the trees, and the light ones are easier to see by the birds. So now they're eating all the light-colored ones, and we have a bigger population of dark ones. And that was called evolution, folks. Anybody calling that evolution does not understand Darwinian evolution. See, nothing was added. That's nothing more than variety within kind. You need to explain where that original moth came from and all the DNA and everything in it. That's what you need to explain, and that simply has not been done. So no evolution there, a complete misunderstanding of evolution by teaching peppered moths. Well, number six, the monarch butterfly was used to teach evolution. And that, again, is false. It shows a complete lack of understanding of what we call information in DNA. Let me tell you about this monarch butterfly. It is an amazing creature. It really shows the handiwork of our creator God. See, an adult lays an egg. It's a very tiny little egg. And this egg, once it hatches, reaches maturity in 20 days. And it grows from about one-tenth of an inch to about almost two inches long in those 20 days. And here's an amazing fact. In those 20 days, it increases its weight by about 2,700 times. How would you like out there to increase your weight 2,700 times? That would be an incredible human being. Now, once it reaches maturity, it builds a little silk pad on the bottom of a leaf. And it attaches itself and hangs in a J position. For about six hours, it does this. Then it starts a little cyclic movement. And it's about ready to build the chrysalis. And this is what it's doing, building the chrysalis. And it does it almost blinded because it does it from the head back. Now, here's the amazing part that shows there has to be a creator God. Once that caterpillar is completely inside that chrysalis, the entire caterpillar, everything except the heart, dissolves into a green liquid. Now, what in the world could that caterpillar do once it's dissolved itself into a green liquid? Nothing. That's it. It's the end of it. But here's something that happens. After eight days, it appears as a complex flying insect called a monarch butterfly. How does it reassemble itself? Well, see, evolution can't see into the future. It can't store things up for the future. It's done on blind, random chance. Here's the answer. In order to reassemble itself from a green liquid in just eight days into a monarch butterfly, in that DNA, it has to have pre-programmed information. That information has to be already pre-programmed into that caterpillar's DNA to understand how to do this in just eight days. 
Folks, that is not evolution. That is designed by a creator God. Powerful information that there has to be a creator God, the monarch butterfly. Well, let's go to mistake number seven here, beneficial mutations. Evolution tells us there's beneficial mutations, not a lot of them, but there's enough of them to cause evolution to happen. They say through these beneficial mutations, new information is added. But folks, mutations are negative things. What do we actually observe out there? We observe recombined information, loss of functionality in information, redundant information, but never a gain in new genetic information. That has never been discovered. We can recombine it. We can lose it. We can have redundant information, but not new information. Let me read a couple of quotes here, a few quotes. Jerry Bergman has his Ph.D. in human biology, makes this statement. About 4 in 10,000 of no mutations are presumed to be beneficial. However, these are only beneficial in a very narrow sense since they involve a loss of function. Not one of these mutations unambiguously created new information. And he's got his Ph.D. in human biology. John Sanford has a Ph.D. in genetics. He states, Amazingly, there are still no known mutations which ambiguously create or add information, not even the ones that are considered beneficial. Here's Jonathan Sarfati, Ph.D. in chemistry, states, All the alleged proofs of evolution in action to date do not show that functional new information is added to genes. Rather, they involve sorting and or loss of information. So beneficial mutations, yes, in a very narrow sense, but it's always due to a loss of functionality or information, never a gain. So again, another great mistake by evolutionists. Why? Because we're not allowed to teach the true science in our public systems. Let's go to mistake number eight, carbon-14 dating. We're told this is an accurate method for dating fossils up to 50 to 60,000 years. But what they don't teach is the whole carbon-14 dating method is based on an assumption, and that assumption has been proven false. That's not taught in the schools. And incidentally, we're finding carbon-14 in coal. After about 100,000 years, there should be no carbon-14 in any fossils or any once-living things. Coal is supposed to be millions of years old. It should not contain any carbon-14, but yet we're finding it in there. We're finding carbon-14 in diamonds. Now, diamonds are a very special kind of stone because they're made up of pure carbon. Carbon-14 should not be there because they're supposed to be hundreds of millions to billions of years old. But yet, carbon fourteen's in there. We're finding carbon-14 in many, many dinosaur bones. If they died out 65 million years ago, there should be no carbon-14 in there. See, carbon-14, based on the assumption being proven false, is really only reliable up to about 3,000 years. And again, after about 80,000 to 100,000 years, should be no carbon-14 left in any fossils. But yet, we're finding it all over. Why don't they reveal the assumption in the textbooks? There's nowhere mention of assumption about carbon-14 dating. So again, another major mistake because they're not willing to teach the science. Let's go to mistake number nine. All real scientists believe in evolution. Did you know modern science was founded on Bible-believing Christians? Louis Pasteur, bacteriology. Isaac Newton, calculus. Johann Kepler, astronomy. Charles Babbage, the computer science. Maxwell, James Maxwell, electrodynamics. Gregor Mendel, genetics. Michael Faraday, electric generator. Rudolf Virchow, 
the father of pathology. Most all our minds, modern science was founded by Bible-believing Christians, not through evolution thinking. And incidentally, there are hundreds to thousands of Bible-believing scientists today. For instance, Answers in Genesis, the Institute for Creation Research, Creation Ministries International, and Creation Resource Society all have many PhD scientists. PhDs in geology, astronomy, genetics, biology, chemistry, mathematics, physics, and every other area of science. <clears throat> and most of these scientists got their PhDs from secular universities, but yet they have rejected evolutionism. Why? Because it is not science, and it does not agree with the Bible. Thousands of Bible-believing scientists today, many of them hold to a literal six-day creation. They're not influenced by these dating methods because they're not accurate evil either. You see, the Bible and true science agree. The battle is not between science and the Bible. That is a misnomer there. That degrades God when you say the battle is between science and the Bible. Because who created all the science? God did. The science will always agree with God's Word. It's evolution that does not agree with the science, nor does it agree with God's Word. And then finally, major mistake number 10, telling us the Bible is outdated. It's just a book of fiction and cannot be trusted. For decades, centuries, people have tried to burn the Bible, ban the Bible, and outlaw the Bible. All the way from the days of Diocletian, Roman emperor from 264 to 305 AD, he tried to get rid of all Christians and their book. Modern atheistic nations, and even our public education system, our public system there, secular universities, all banning the Bible, teaching it as modern fiction. People have tried to add books and subtract books from the Bible. People have tried to tell us it's simply not relevant today. Time Magazine wrote an article, the Bible, fact or fiction. Newsweek wrote an article, the decline and fall of Christian America. People have tried to compromise God's Word by adding the Big Bang into the Bible or by adding billions of years into the Bible, which you cannot find anywhere in the Bible. People have tried to mock God and His Word, such as the Da Vinci Code. But folks, let me tell you, archaeology, prophecy, science, Written records all confirm the, tr the Bible is true. And the track record is this, ladies and gentlemen. After all those people for centuries and centuries tried to burn it, ban it, outlaw it, ladies and gentlemen, they are all dead. And the Bible teaches this in Matthew chapter 24, verse 35. Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away. That is the fact. And you know, the Bible is true from beginning to end. That means it also holds true for God's message of salvation. John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, who is this Jesus? Ladies and gentlemen, he is the creator. He is our one and only Savior. He will be our judge in the end. Acts 4, 12 says this, Nor is there salvation in any other. For there is no other name under heaven given by among men by which we must be saved. Only Jesus, not Buddha, not Mohammed, not Joseph Smith, not Mary, not the Pope, or any other person or thing. There's only one way to heaven, and his name is Jesus. And I'll leave you with this. Do you know him? Thank you, and God bless. That's all for today's show. Defending the Faith airs each Saturday at noon right here on KBXL 94.1 The Voice. For more teachings and resources, visit creationtraining.org or the program archive page on 941thevoice.com.